morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're looking at the story of Yeshua's conversation with the Samaritan woman at a well. And Lazarus uses marital imagery in chapters 2 and 3 and in 4 to present Yeshua as the bridegroom of the church. And that Jacob's well is the location of his encounter here with the Samaritan woman, I think is to remind us, the reader, that in the Tanakh, a well is the place where a bride was courted. And when Jacob first saw his beloved Rachel, it was at this well. In chapter 4, though, the Samaritan woman, Yeshua, the bridegroom, is speaking to his beloved Israel and calling her back into covenant relationship with himself. This really, as I've said before, is a story of fulfilled prophecy. What we have seen so far is that Yeshua and His disciples have left Judea. They're headed to Galilee. They're traveling through Samaria, and they stop at a well. And Yeshua is tired, so He remains there while His disciples go in to buy food. After they leave, a Samaritan woman arrives, and a conversation begins between Yeshua and this woman. And this is kind of why I stopped the song service earlier. What he did, it was the gentle hand that pulled her from the judgment of the crowd. You disciples go. She's coming. They're alone. No judgment. No staring looks. No anything from the disciples who had an attitude. And we'll see that in a minute here. But he just got alone to deal with this woman in pure grace. So, Yeshua and this woman, they talk about water, and He points her to the water of eternal life. They discuss worship, and He points her to a time that is coming, He says, and now is in His ministry, that worship will no longer be carried on either in Mount Gerizim, the mountain of the Samaritans, or in Mount Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem. But actually, worship shall be shall take place wherever a man in the Spirit of truth lifts his heart to God. John 4.24 25 and 26, this is where we closed last week, so let's back up here and start here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She has got a belief in Messiah. They're waiting. Who is called the Christ. That's Lazarus adding that there for his Gentile readers, explaining that. When that one comes, she says, he will declare all things to us. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now note that the Samaritan woman believed in a promise of the Messiah. To her, the Messiah was going to be teacher. When He comes, He's going to declare all things to us. He's going, to, he's going to teach us. See, she didn't view, and the Samaritans didn't view the Messiah as a military conqueror. In many respects, they had a much clearer vision of the Messiah than the Jews did. All right, Because the Jews thought primarily He's going to be a political, a military figure. He's going to rid us from the oppression of Rome. And that's why He never used that title when He was dealing with the Jews. Where here, clearly, with the Messiah, with the Samaritans, he said, "Yeah, I'm the Messiah." Now, how is it that these Samaritans, who believed only in the inspiration of the Pentateuch, the first five books, how they understand the coming of Messiah? Well, if you go back and look, you find there's actually quite a bit in the Pentateuch about the Messiah. All right, the first message, the first glimpse we get of the Messiah, I think, is in Genesis three fifteen where it is indicated that the woman's seed will ultimately crush Satan. Later, Abraham was told that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Genesis 22. Jacob had foretold the coming of Shiloh, the rest giver, from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. In Exodus, the Messiah had been foreshadowed in the Passover lamb. And in Leviticus, various offerings prepare those paying attention for the Messiah's redeeming sacrifice. In Numbers, the death of Him who is to be lifted up to provide healing was prefigured, and Balaam spoke of the star that would rise out of Jacob, a scepter in Israel to destroy the enemies of Yahweh. And as we have already seen, Moses told of the prophet, like unto him who would demand obedience from all in Deuteronomy 18. So this woman looked with expectance for the coming Messiah. He's going to be a teacher. He's coming. And then Yeshua responds to her, I who speak to you am He. Now the Greek here literally reads, I am the one speaking to you. Now His words, I am, recall God's revelation to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. The Samaritans were familiar with Exodus. 
where Yahweh declared His covenant name, Yahweh. And that's what Yeshua says here, I am. Yahweh. Or Ehiah. Asher Ehiah. I am who I am. And I think that it's at this point, she says, we know Messiah's coming, He's going to teach all things, and He says, I am. I think it's at this point that this lady gets it. I think it's at this point that she becomes a believer in Yeshua HaMashiach. And at this point, the conversation ends abruptly. Just as the disciples return with the food. So they're gone the whole time. And he's having a great conversation. He finishes up with this, and then the disciples show up. It says, at this point, his disciples came. And they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Alright, it says, at this point, in the Greek this is very specific, at this specific moment, at this critical juncture, the disciples finished with their food, buying their food, probably in Sychar, and they returned. They return at the very moment that Yeshua declares who He was to this woman. And this woman now, I believe, born of the Spirit, leaves in a haste to run back to her village and tell other people. And again, I think he, the disciples were gone because He's protecting her. Because we see that you know they didn't have the best attitude about this. His disciples come and they were amazed. He'd been speaking to a woman. <laughs> the word amazed here is from the Greek, thumadzo, which was characteristically used when the object of perception was extremely unusual. You get that? They're like, what? This is not right. He's talking to a woman. This same word is used of the disciple after Yeshua calmed the storm. Okay, there's a huge storm. They fear for their very life. They wake Yeshua up. you got to do something. you got to help us. And He said to them, Why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Then He got up. He rebuked the winds and the sea. And it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed. Same word. And they said, What kind of man is this? I mean, that even the winds and the sea obey Him. Have you ever been out on the lake or at the sea during a storm? It's a little frightening, you know, depending how bad the storm is. But what I can't imagine is going from that scenario to a perfect flat calm. Because, and you can imagine the disciples, they were amazed. Alright, they are shocked. They're in a boat and all of a sudden everything stops and it's flat, calm. They see the power of God right before their eyes and it says they're amazed. So why were these disciples so amazed that Yeshua is talking to a woman? Well, their reaction reflects the typical Jewish prejudice against Samaritans and against women. All right, And again, I think that's why He sends them away. I don't want them giving her evil looks. I don't want them staring at her when I'm trying to talk to her. I don't want them disrupting this because they don't get it yet. All right? In Yeshua's day, men in general, and rabbis in particular, did not talk to women in public. They just didn't do it. I'm sure you've heard the prayer that the Jewish men pray. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. The daily prayer. Okay? So, needless to say, their view of women <laughs> wasn't all that high. The woman's prayer was this. Blessed, O Lord, who has fashioned me according to Thy will. Now that prayer is simply a prayer acknowledging that she is nothing more than a piece of furniture. Lord, You're blessed. You made me this way. I'm nothing, but You're blessed because You made me this way. That's how a woman felt in that culture. They had no standing. Now, Jewish thought held that for a rabbi to talk much with a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time and at worst a diversion from the study of Torah. And therefore, potentially a great evil that could lead to Gehenna. Now, I'm not talking about in public, just general, talking to a woman, spending time talking to a woman. They're saying, hey, that just 
You know, you could be doing other important things, all right? The rabbis held the study of Torah to be the greatest good in life. And they discouraged women from studying it at all. When Ben Azay suggested that women be taught the Torah for certain purposes, Rabbi Eleazar replied, If any man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is as though he taught her lechery. You know what lechery is? Basically, he's saying prostitution, sexual immorality. And he, it's better if he taught her to be a harlot than to teach her the law. This was the belief of that culture. But Yeshua went against cultural norms and he treated women, all women, this Samaritan who's had five husbands and living with a man who's not her husband, he treats her with love, respect, and honor. And I think this is what caused the disciples to be amazed. You're talking to this woman? You know, we see all through the New Testament that Yeshua treated women differently than the cultural norm. His mother took great care for his mother. Mary Magdalene, the woman that was bent over for 18 years, the Syrophoenician woman, Mary and Martha, the widow with the two coins and others, always treating them as equals with love and respect. Paul wrote to the Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Yeshua. In our relationship, now listen, I got it's sad, but in our culture I have to make this clear. There is difference between male and female. Okay? There is difference. That's, that's, he's not saying there's no difference between them. He's saying in your relationship with God, there is no difference. Men don't have any you know, special insight that they can get closer to God Men and women are equal. That's what he's trying to put across here. Wherever Christianity has become deeply rooted in the culture, the treatment of women has greatly improved. Greatly improved. Yet, in our culture, Christianity is totally frowned upon, totally put down, constantly. And what's amazing to me is the liberal media, and I think liberals in general, Find some great value in Islam. This is just a great, this is just a nice, peaceful religion. You know that throughout the Muslim world today, women are treated as second class citizens and they're inferior to men in terms of intelligence, morals, and faith. And this arrangement derives from the Quran. Okay, this is not, well, these guys don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, they're getting it from their Bible. The Quran states this. Men have authority over women because God has made the one superior to the other. You won't find anything like that in Scripture. The Quran likens women to a field to be used by a man as he wills. Your women are a tilleth, that's a field, for you to cultivate, so go to your tilleth as you will. Just do with it as you will because it belongs to you. And Sahih Muslim, chapter 4 Aisha, you know who Aisha is? Aisha is Muhammad's favorite wife, okay? He took her as his wife when she was six years old. He consummated the marriage when she was nine. This is typical today in Islam, all right? Aisha said to Muhammad, you have made us equal to the dogs and the asses. These are the words of Muhammad's favorite wife complaining of the role assigned to women under Islam. The Islamic court system relegates women to a lowly status. According to the Quran, a woman's testimony is worth only half of that of a man. This is the thing that should make us all really sick, okay? In cases of rape, no conviction can occur in an Islamic court under Sharia law unless four male eyewitnesses testify to having seen the act occur. What's that saying? It's not going to happen. Four male witnesses have to say, yes, we saw that rape occur. Now, this is in keeping with a 7th century edict by Muhammad. Still practiced today. So our liberal media and our liberals in this country who think that Islam is such a great thing, it's so funny that when I hear, when I see a woman you know, trying to promote Islam, I'm like, you're a fool. You don't know anything about what you're talking about. Because under Islam, she wouldn't be talking. 
Today, the plight of millions of women in cultures around the world where Yeshua is not known and trusted is dismal, to say the least. And as we see Yeshua dealing with this woman, we should realize, folks, that Christianity changes everything. He treats this Samaritan woman with love and respect, and He wins her respect. She's shocked to begin with that He even speaks to her. And then He's speaking to her, not looking down on her. She's like, you're a Jew and you're talking to me? He didn't care about that she was a Samaritan. He didn't care about her immoral lifestyle that He knew everything about. He just cared that she was a person. So the woman left her water pot. (laughs) She comes to draw water. She leaves with living water. Now, there's a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, in the commentaries. Why did this lady leave her water pot? Well, you know what? We don't have a clue. Okay? Doesn't tell us, so we don't know. All right? I mean, my guess on this would be, hey, she's excited. I mean, she's just come to faith in Christ. She knew about the Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. She found the Messiah. She drops it all and goes back. I want to share this good news. She can't wait to get back to the village and tell other people. And carrying a heber wadi pot. A heber... Yeah. <laughs> a heavy water pot. Thank you. Would have really slowed her down. So she's like, I'm leaving this thing and I'm going. You know, another option maybe is this whole thing started by Yeshua asking her for a drink. He hadn't had one yet, so she's like, I gotta go, but to keep the water pot, because this well is a hundred feet deep, use it to get your water, I'll be back. Alright? And she just takes off. So she goes back to her village and she says to the men. You say, well, why is this woman talking to the men? Well, because typically at the gate of the village, the men sat and they adjudicated the issues of the town. So the men are sitting there kind of like a court thing. And it would have been natural for the woman to report this discovery to the men because they're the spiritual leaders. And they would have had to determine if Yeshua was really the Messiah. So she goes and tells them, you know, and look what she says. Come see a man who has told me all things that I have done. I think there's a little hyperbole in that. I doubt they told him everything, but I think there was probably enough detail there that they're like shocked. This guy never met you. This is a Jewish man. This guy's a rabbi. He's telling you all this stuff. I mean, this had, they had to start and think, well, this guy must have some connection with God. There's supernatural ability here that he knows all about this. Now, notice what she says to the men. This is not the Christ, is it? I don't think that this expresses doubt on her part at all. I think she's a believer at this point. But I think she wisely framed this in the form of a question to elicit investigation. She asked a question which a negative answer is implied, but it leaves them perfectly at ease to draw their own conclusions. Listen, this woman has been married to five men. So one thing she knows is a little bit about the male ego. Okay? And so instead of going to these guys and saying, hey guys, I found the Christ, come on, you got to see him. They'd be like, you crazy immoral woman, get out of here. So she comes and says, look, I found this guy, he told me all these things, how would he know these? He's not the Christ, is he? And they're like, we'll be the decider of that. And she's like, yeah, laughing all, just like our wives do, okay? She's laughing all, she, got, she knows what she's doing, okay? She basically puts it in the form of a question, like I'm looking to you for guidance. Personally, I think this is the best way to talk to an unbeliever or to talk to somebody about doctrinal issues that has different issues than you is in the form of questions. In the form of questions. Such as, you know, why do you think that Yeshua told this crowd that He was speaking to that this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled? Why did He say this generation? Who do you think He was talking to? What did He mean by generation? And make them think about something they probably never even considered before. See, because when we come across like, hey, I know the answer to all these things in this Bible, and I'm going to tell you how this should be interpreted, you just get resistance. People put up walls, don't even talk to me. But when you go with questions, you know, instead of making pronouncements, you disarm people. And they're like, that is a good question. What did he mean by generation? And you know, get them thinking, and then maybe you can, well, you know, here's what I think it might mean. It might mean what it says. How weird is that? He might be talking to those people there and said that the generation he is talking to, you know, are going to see all this. She's This lady's smart, people. Okay, she might be immoral, (laughs) but she is smart. All right? (laughs) They went out of the city and were coming to him. 
Now, the tense of the last verb here, we're coming to him, is, is vividly descriptive of the fact that the testimony this woman gave in the city was so remarkable that there's a continuous stream of people who are coming to hear about this man who had told her all things that she had done. They're continually coming out to go to see Yeshua. And they probably, as the community leaders, they proceed out of the city to the well to investigate this. Because she says, this is not the Christ. And they said, yeah, we'll figure that out. We don't need you to help us with that, okay? So in the background, the woman returns to her home, tells everyone in the village about what's happening. Their response is a movement towards Yeshua. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, all right, in the foreground, Yeshua is having a dialogue with his disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, really? Who brought him lunch? Where did he get this food? My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. They assume when he says, I have food to eat you don't know about, that somebody brought lunch. They're looking around, oh wow, who was it that brought lunch here? And he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. This is a declaration of priorities. You should have said, my priority is spiritual. He's speaking figuratively of the substance that comes from doing the will of God. And I think this points to a very significant fact of the spiritual life. Our strength in life comes from doing the will of God. That's where our strength comes from. That's where the power comes from. Yeshua is echoing, I think, without a doubt here, Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses addresses Israel and seeks to explain God's way to them. He says, He humbled you and He let you be hungry. And He fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know. You know what manna means, right? What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? That's what they said. Here's this, what is this stuff? Well, you're going to be eating it for 40 years, so get used to it, okay? <laughs> Nor did your fathers know that He might make you to understand. Here's the point here. Man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. We don't stay alive because we have food. We stay alive because God grants us life. Bottom line. And so, you know, you don't need to shortcut the things of the Lord to try to get what you think you need because the Lord can provide anything you need. Yeshua's spiritual nourishment came from doing the Father's will, from advancing the Father's work. Look at John 6.38. He said, I have come down from heaven. Continually is reiterating this. I came from heaven. Okay? I want you to know where I came from. And I didn't come down here to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He goes on to say, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me. So Yeshua didn't go through Samaria because it was the shorter route. Alright? He came through Samaria to do the will of God. He came to keep a divine appointment with the Samaritan woman. He went to Samaria to fulfill prophecy. He says in Luke 19.10 that He came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what He's doing here. Food and drink were secondary to reaching lost people. That was primary to Him. And after just three short years, He says verse 17.4 here, He says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've accomplished the work. I did it. The will of the Father is always the driving force beside, behind Yeshua's mission. Which reminds me of a statement that David makes in the 16th Psalm when speaking typically of the Lord Yeshua. He says, I have set Yahweh continually before me. This is how all of us who are children of the King should live our lives. I have set Yahweh continually before me. But it sure seems like for the most part we live differently and we look at life differently. Instead of being sustained by our service to Yahweh, so many of us seek satisfaction in homes. I mean, we got more than we need, but we need a bigger one because it's a status symbol. We seek financial security. And, you know, we'd really love to spend our life in pleasure, but our Lord has a very significant Word here for Christians. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. You know, I wonder, 
and I ask myself this a lot, what are we willing to give up so that the gospel can be shared? What are we willing to give up that people can be taught the truth about Yeshua? And I think one of the reasons we so often struggle in the Christian life is that our priorities are wrong. It's about us. What we want, what we need, what we think. Yeshua didn't care about Himself. His purpose, driving purpose was to do the will of the Father. So Yeshua's disciples think He's literally talking about food. Just as Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman thought He was literally talking about water. (laughs) Them just like us, they're on this physical plane and they just don't get the spiritual. Well, the Lord further instructs His disciples, He says, do not say there yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. He says, don't say there's yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Now, some say this tells us that it's December or January on this occasion when this happens because the harvest occurs in April or May. And some say that Yeshua's reference to four months is probably just proverbial. I think it was the approximate time between the last growing, last sowing and the earliest harvest. And given the fertility of Israel, there's two planting seasons per year, and there's four months in between the planting and the harvest. And Yeshua is telling them, you don't have to wait around. The fields are already white for harvest. Okay, This is not like in the physical realm. You sow a seed and you sit around and you'll wait. You can't do anything else. You water, you cultivate it, but you've got to wait for the four months and then you can reap. This is different. He says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're already white for harvest. Now again, we got to understand he's speaking in a spiritual sense. While the physical harvest from the farms necessitate waiting for those crops to mature, you don't have to do that in the spiritual realm. You can sow and you can reap right away. Here in the Samaritan town where the Jews would not even expect it, there's a spiritual harvest. It's ripe and it's waiting. Now, he says that they're white for harvest. When have you ever seen a harvest that's white? Other than cotton. You ever seen a field all white because it's ready to be harvested? They didn't, they're not growing cotton over there, so what in the world is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about something that they would have understood. The Samaritans typically dressed in long, white, flowing garments. And so our Lord at one moment is speaking of the natural food, and then He's speaking of spiritual food, so He quickly moves from the water that we drink to the water that springs up to everlasting life. It wouldn't be surprising that He says, look at the fields, these Samaritans are coming out to receive the truth of the Gospel. And there they are in their white garments, and they're just pouring down the hill, and they're pouring towards the well where Jacob is. And He says, lift up your eyes, look at the fields. They're white. He's not talking about a physical crop here, people. And He says... So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now this clause extends the agricultural metaphor in new directions. We all know you don't sow and reap together, right? But Yeshua seems to be referring here to the eschatological promise of Amos. Look what Amos says. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Look at that. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. Yeshua seems to be saying that the eschatological age has dawned in His ministry in which sowing and reaping will come together in the harvest of the crop. The Messianic community, the church. And notice the verse that precedes this in Amos. Remember when, as a Hebrew, you don't just pick a verse out, okay? It's always in context. And the thing with them, oftentimes the rabbis, the teachers, would quote a verse, knowing that their audience knew the whole context. And that's very important, okay? because if you don't know the context, you don't get the story. Well, in this context here, we back up, he says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, 
And I will wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and the nations who are called by my name declares Yahweh who does this. Who is this promise to that in the day I will raise up the fallen booth of David? This is made to Israel and to the Gentiles. Because here's the thing, at this time, Israel, they are Gentiles. They're scattered among the Gentiles, and they're no different. So Amos is writing to Israel, the ten northern tribes. Booth here refers to the family line. Yahweh said He's going to destroy and rebuild Israel, meaning that national Israel will be destroyed, never to rise again, but spiritual Israel will rise from its ruins. Now if you go to Acts 15, James says that Peter account of the Gentiles being saved is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Amos. He quotes this. He says, what Peter's doing, the Gentiles are coming in the church, this is a fulfillment of this promise of Amos. So James is saying that this prophecy is being fulfilled in the church. And I believe that the Bible teaches the essential continuity of Israel and the church. The elect of all ages are seen as one people, true Israel, with one Savior and one destiny. Now, this view is often called replacement theology, and it's said that the church replaced Israel. Much better would be fulfillment theology. Okay, The promises of Yahweh made to Old Covenant Israel are fulfilled in the church of Yeshua, which is the true Israel. Christianity is the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to Israel. Dispensationalists hate this, but you can't get around it. Just ask them, who's the new covenant made to? House of Israel, house of Judah, right? That's what the Bible says. Who, who inherited it? Well, the church, they can't get around that. So guess what? We're the fulfillment of Israel. We are spiritual Israel. He says, for in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Now, the Greek term here, entauto, in this, can look forward as well as backward. In this case, I think it looks forward. So verse 37, which contains a proverb, is summarized in verse 38. And it means that both sower and reapers are necessary to get the harvest done. Verse 38 says, I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So disciples are being able to reap where they hadn't labored. I mean, they just showed up. They just got into Samaria, and now they have the opportunity to see all these people come to the gospel. But they weren't involved in any of the labor there. There weren't others here who labored. It's probably a reference to the prophets, probably no doubt to Moses, since they only had the Pentateuch. But I think it's also a reference to John the Baptist and his followers. His work in the very area had prepared the way for Yeshua and his disciples. Look at John 3.23. John also was baptizing in Anan near Selim. Both these places are in Samaria. So John had been there. So the prophets and John had sown along with the Samaritan woman who has gone into town bearing testimony that Yeshua is at the well and that he has told her all things that she has done. She did the sowing. Now it's time for Yeshua and his disciples to reap. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Yeshua, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there Two days. Many more believed because of His Word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we will believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. From that city, many believed. Many of the Samaritans believed in Him. Now, whenever you have the Bible saying someone believed, you have someone saying they didn't. Let me make it simple for you. Just believe what the Bible says, okay? Because, listen, when John says someone believes, that's what John means. Someone believed. It doesn't mean they pretended to believe. They faked believing. When Lazarus is writing about belief, that's exactly what he means. Notice the whole purpose of this book, John 20, 31. But these have been written so that you may believe. That's why he writes. That Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and they're believing. You may have life in His name. What are these Samaritans believing? They're believing that Yeshua is the Christ. He's the Messiah, because that's what the whole thing's all about. He says, because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. 
Now, her confession regarding the exposure of her past was probably in so detailed that it was compelling that this guy knew something that he couldn't have known if he's not a prophet or not someone special. And that's what she says, is this the prophet? See, they only believed in one prophet other than Moses, and that was the Messiah. So this Samaritan woman, she's a brand new convert. She's having a conversation, and boom. She's given eternal life, and she is excited about the gospel, all right? You know, the sad thing is that an individual who's been a Christian for a long time, chances are they haven't shared the gospel with anybody for a long, long time. They haven't shared. And yet, you get a new Christian, they just find out about the Lord, and you can't shut them up. They're talking to everybody. They're preaching at work. They're, in their na- they're just going to everybody, telling about the Christ. That's how it was with me. I got saved. I was so excited, man. I bought a bushel basket of tracks, started handing them out, and I quickly got disappointed. I mean, this is awesome. How can you not believe this? A lot of people didn't believe it. And it kind of cools you down a little, you know? I wish we could keep that original zeal as we added knowledge. You know, it seems like we get knowledge and we lose the zeal. And I think one of the problems most of us have is that, you know, when we're saved first, everybody we know is a heathen. They all need to hear this message. After we're saved by a while, we don't know any non-believers. We stay away from them. <laughs> we don't want their cooties, right? And I really think that our responsibility as Christians is to be involved with non-believers so we can share the gospel with them. I don't mean go out one day handing out tracts or knocking on doors. I think that's foolish and from my perspective. You want to do it, you go right ahead. Okay, I call that intrusion evangelism, all right? But I think we should be practicing lifestyle evangelism. We have opportunities to share the goodness of God with people we work with, people at school, people in our neighborhood, whoever. But we get so isolated, we're not contacting unbelievers anymore. I think we have to work at that. I think we should make some real efforts in our life to do something to get connected with some unbelievers. How else do we share with them? Listen, we're not going to catch any diseases they have, okay? You're not going to catch unbelief and walk away. You know, you, you just need to be around people so we can share things with them. And, and I just love the zeal that this woman has, that she just leaves her water pot and books back to that city. Why? To tell other people. You know why the gospel is called good news? Because it's good news. We act like it's bad news, and we hate to tell people, i got bad news for you. You know? Christ died for sinners. I know it's bad news, but you know you are a sinner, so maybe it's good news. You know, we got to get excited about this, people. It's up to us. That's why he left us here to share with other people the good news. All right, I'll get off the soapbox and move on. John four forty. So when the Samaritan came to Yeshua, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. The word "asking" here is in the imperfect tense. It's they kept on asking him. Please stay with us. Please stay with us. That Samaritans are here urging a Jewish rabbi to stay with them attests not only to the degree of confidence they had that he had earned from them, but their conviction that he was none less than the promised Messiah. Please stay with us. Stay with us. And look what it says. He stayed there two days. Do you know that's a big deal? This is the only town ever and Yeshua's life that we know about that he ever stayed two days. Samaritans, go figure. Those half-breeds, and he's staying there. The only time that we have in the Bible that he stayed with the whole town, just revealing himself to them, sitting down and sharing with these people, because they're excited about it. Many more believe because of his word. Now, these additional converts believe because what Yeshua told them, his own witness, which confirmed to them what the woman had already said. Look at it. And they were, st- and they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. I don't think this is to disparage her testimony at all. It's to confirm it. Because they had heard from themselves and judged what she said was true. What you said about him, he's saying the same thing about himself. You said he's Messiah. He's saying he's Messiah. We believe it. But it's now because we heard it directly from him. It's true. He says, we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. 
The Samaritans are the first people to recognize that the salvation that Yeshua is offering is for all nations of the world. See, when he's talking in Jerusalem and he said he's the Savior, would they think, yep, <laughs> you're for us, you're the Jew, we're, yeah, you're our Savior. That's The title Savior of the world is unique to Lazarus. He only uses it here and in 1 John 4.14. He says, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, earlier in the story, Yeshua told the woman, salvation is from the Jews, right? He says, you Samaritans don't know what you're doing. Salvation is from the Jews. But it wasn't only for the Jews. It was from the Jews, but it was to reach out to the whole world. They knew that Christ was more than just the Savior of Jews. He was their Savior, too. And that's why they're saying, you're the Savior of the world. Now, this is an appropriate title, Savior of the World. It's appropriate that it should be applied to Yeshua in the context of ministry to the Samaritans because they're the first cross, cross-culture evangelism that took place. Undertaken by Yeshua Himself and issuing in a pattern that the church was to follow. Remember, we talked about this before. This is what Yeshua did. Now He's sending out His disciples says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. That's exactly where He's been. He was in Jerusalem, He went to Judea, and now He's in Samaria. And there's a lot of stress in the fourth gospel on the universal salvation of Yeshua. And it's not that it's universal that every single person gets saved. I got a letter this week from another universalist. Don't you think this this universal gospel exalts Christ? I said, no. Not the Christ of the Bible. Because He saves certain individuals. Not everybody without distinction and not everybody without exception. He didn't die for everybody without distinction or without exception. He died for Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans. He is the Savior of the world. By that, He's meaning not just Jews. Not every single person. There's sheep, but there's also goats. Okay? And there's some who perish. What we see happening here in Samaria is the fulfillment of prophecy, people. And that, to me, is just the main thing. Yahweh promised this a long time ago. Speaking with Israel, Yahweh said this. Yahweh said, call His name not My people. Do you understand the severity of this to Israel, the people of God? He says, you're not My people anymore. I'm done with you. I'll give you a writ of divorcement. I'm through. He says, you are not My people. I am not your God. Go find another God to serve because I'm not yours anymore. Now, then He goes this, yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people. Okay? In Israel, the place where it was said to them, you're not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. Guess what? You're going to be my people. Hosea goes on in chapter 2, 23. And I will sow her for myself in a land. Notice the sowing metaphor here that kind of ties in with what we're reading. And John, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. Because Hosea said, I'm not having mercy. You are no mercy for you people. He said, I'm going to have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. So here we see the Samaritans who were not my people become my people. And prophecy is being fulfilled. You know, it's interesting to look at the comparison between Yeshua's witness to Nicodemus, who, you know, Nicodemus is just full of questions, doesn't seem to do much with it at that time, questions a lot of stuff. And the Samaritan woman, how different can these two people be? One, this highly educated leader in Jerusalem, another, an immoral woman from the Samaritans. I mean, you look at the comparisons, we could go on and on and talk about them. A man, a woman, I mean, a Jew, a Samaritan, you know, highly respected, uh, immoral, it just goes on and on. But I think Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman represent the histories of their people. The covenant people of Judah and the apostate people from the northern kingdom of Israel. And Yeshua witnessing to these two, to Nicodemus first, and then to the Samaritan woman, I think is fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 37. He said to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it to the stick of Judah. So I'm taking the tribes of Israel, 
and I'm going to join it to the stick of Judah. Remember, they were one kingdom at one part. They were split up because of sin. He says, I'm going to bring them back together. And the way he's going to bring them back together is in the church. And he said, I'm going to make them one stick and they shall be one in my hand. The restoration of Israel that we see in our text is just the beginning of this prophecy. And what's neat is after the death of Stephen, as you get into the book of Acts, the Jerusalem church was scattered abroad. And Philip the evangelist went where? Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began to proclaim Christ to them. Guess what? There was already some people in Samaria who become, you know, Christians and were probably sharing that already. He tells us in verse 6, the crowds were with one accord giving attention to what was being said. In other words, he's getting a great reception. People in Samaria are listening and they're hearing the gospel. And subsequently, the gospel was proclaimed in many villages of the Samaritans. Acts 8.25 So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the acceptance of Philip's message might be due to the preparatory work that was accomplished here by the woman sharing her faith, by the disciples being involved, by the Lord being involved there in those villages. And so really in this case, Philip is reaping the benefit of others' labors. Just like we talked about in the text. He's getting to reap where others have sown. He's seeing a harvest. And I think the story of this Samaritan woman at the well clearly shows us that Yeshua, He's the Savior of the world. It's not all about Israel. It's not all about Jerusalem. And that He makes it clear. He goes to the most hated people that the Jews knew, the Samaritans. They had forsaken Yahweh. They were half-breeds. They weren't even human. Some of the rabbis did not consider them human at all. They were subhuman. And he calls Israel and Judah back together into one people in the church. I just think this is such a beautiful story. And I hated the fact to have to break this thing up like I did. Because I'd like to just do it all in one thing so you can get the whole picture. But you know, there's just no way to do that. But you've got to see just the Lord's loving, gentle, compassionate touch to this woman. You know, as we were singing, call it grace, that's all I could think about, you know, the the gentle hand that leads you from the judgment of the crowd. And the, the sad thing was this judgment that he protected her from was his own disciples. They still didn't get it. They just thought, you know, they're Samaritans. And, you know, it, it took them a while. It took them a long time, and they were living with them. So maybe the Lord has grace on us who uh, are very ignorant for a long period of time. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word, for the power that it has. Father, may we see the love of our Savior in this text. To a woman that most of the world would have judged, looked down on, condemned. He reaches out with the saving Gospel and makes her a child of the King. He took this orphan woman and placed a crown on her head. Thank You, Father. Help us to realize, Lord, that we're not in any better status than this Samaritan woman was. We needed your love. We needed your grace. We needed your kindness every bit as much as she did. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Amen. All right. Questions or comments on what we talked about? It's not that significant, but before hearing your messages, I, and as many times as we all have read that, I didn't realize how pivotal that meeting was, how sovereignly pivotal that was to all the things that you brought out for us. It kind of opens up the whole thing. Well, it's it's exciting because you see the fulfillment of prophecy. It's, It's not just, oh, he had a conversation with a woman. This is a, you know, he's left Jerusalem. He's left, and remember, in the text, it's like he turned his back on Jerusalem because Jerusalem doesn't really want to hear him. So I'll go out here to the Samaritans, the hated ones, and, you know, we see this progression, and it's it's just, it's exciting. Like I said, the more you really study the details of Scripture, the more alive, it gets, the more exciting it gets. Veronica? kind of reminds me of, like, because we're here in America, and a lot of us are Christians, and you talk to people here and they've heard Christianity their whole life and they just kind of blow you off you know it's kind of like I can see how Jesus felt that way and Jerusalem tried to talk to his own people and they're like we don't want to deal with you I mean 
Maybe we should go talk to Muslims and other people. Well, you know, you brought out the Veronica brought out the fact that you know in America most people have heard of Christianity, and I agree with that. But here's here's the problem: most people have never seen Christianity. Yeah, they've heard about it, but they've never seen it, and that's our responsibility to let them see it. And the best way it's put on display is through conflict or tribulation. You know, when, you know, okay, you got a million dollars in the mail and you go to work, praise God, you know, God is so good. And they're like, you no kidding. You'd be praising anybody if they gave you a million bucks. But your world falls apart and you go to the work the next day and you say, praise God, I'm so glad He's still on the throne in control of everything. And then they're like, what? Wait a minute. What is this that you believe in that gives you strength in the midst of crisis? You know, that's when they're paying attention. So I really believe that most of them haven't seen it because we don't demonstrate it all that well. We're just kind of blend in with the culture around us. Gary? Uh, one thing I caught when you first started today was that she she goes to the town and she tells the men, he's told me all I've ever done. And I'm like, and apparently they understood. And I'm not sure I would want God telling me everything I'd ever done. You know? Like I know of and there's no doubt the men of the town knew this woman and knew her background. That's why I said it was so, it's just so brilliant the way she says, that's not the Christ, is it? And I thought, you know, women have this knowledge that they know how to, you know, guys think they're in control running the thing. And behind the scenes, women are manipulating everything we do, you know. They're just smart enough not to let us know they're doing that, for the most part. <laughs>